Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to um, skip around a little bit through some vignettes as part of the ten plagues, focusing on the efforts of Pharaoh's magicians to imitate the miracles that Moses is performing. The Lord is performing through Moses. Okay, so starting with Exodus 8, verses 5 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up over the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Go down to verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And finally, jump ahead to chapter 9, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air And it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Amen. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 18. We'll... Begin at 1824 and read on into chapter 19 through verse 20. Actually, we're going to start a little sooner. I forgot. Uh, last, last week we stopped at verse 17, so we're going to back all the way up to 18. This is at the tail end of the second missionary journey as Paul is about to leave Corinth and make his way back towards Jerusalem. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, 
He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they flew out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen. You may be seated. We've come today to 
what is often referred to as Paul's third missionary journey. Although, as some have pointed out, journey maybe is not the best word for it, since he ends up spending a great deal of the time in one place in the city of Ephesus for at least two years. Um, Ephesus was a very important and strategic city and seaport. Commentator Ben Witherington points out that it was smaller only than Rome and Alexandria in the Roman Empire, third biggest city. Um, also, it was he says it was likely that it was from Ephesus that the gospel spread um, from there as a hub to other places in Asia Minor, including the other six churches that John writes to at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Remember, Ephesus is listed first, and then six other churches um, down the road. A great deal of the trade and travel from east to west and back again through the empire, passed through Ephesus, uh, its temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, very impressive, enormous, imposing. There in Ephesus, um, Paul is going to face a lot of the, really the same kinds of opportunities and challenges that he's faced in other cities. But there's one particular theme uh, that is going to emerge uniquely in chapter 19, and that is the, the, the clear delineation of real, full-blooded Christianity in high contrast to a few different alternatives. Um, the faith that Christ, by his Spirit, has brought to Ephesus through the ministry of Paul is, first of all, a complete Christianity over against the incomplete understanding of the uh, disciples of John the Baptist. It's a convictional Christianity um, over against the um, wonder workers of Ephesus who merely want to use it as another magical tool. And third, it's a Christianity that produces changed Christians who confess their sins, who live a life different than the way they were before. And so our three points today are going to be, number one, teachable and total, a complete Christianity. That's up through chapter 19, verse 7. Second is truth and tricks, a convictional Christianity. That's verses 8 to 17. And last, transparent and transformed, the changed Christians of verses 18 to 20. All right, so verses 18 to 22, uh, just to back up a little bit in time, we wrap up the second missionary journey. Um, remember in Corinth, uh, the Lord kept his promise that he gave to Paul in a dream in verse 10. No one, indeed, was permitted to harm Paul there. And it's possible that Paul's vow, verse 18, was his way of acknowledging that promise of protection and of demonstrating when he finally cut his hair uh, that the Lord had indeed kept him safe during all that time that his hair was growing, um, just like he had promised. So eventually, Paul makes his way back to Caesarea, verse 22, then back to Jerusalem. That's what it means when it says he goes up, up to Mount Zion, and then back down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it is from Antioch, then, that he starts out yet again on the third missionary journey. 
And as I said earlier, the major destination for this third um, missionary expedition is going to be Ephesus on the coast of the Mediterranean over to the west, Asia Minor. And so in verse 24, Luke gives us some background on what has been happening there in Ephesus in the meantime while Paul has been back east in Palestine. So Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's friends from Corinth, um, uh, Paul left them in Ephesus when he went on back towards Jerusalem. And so they've been there in Ephesus. And uh, there they, they, they ran into this man, Apollos, who was trying to teach people about Jesus there. And this Apollos was very knowledgeable. He was very fervent. Um, but he was, he was simply missing some links in the chain of the gospel message. It says that he knew only the baptism of John. And Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail about exactly where Apollos' understanding of the gospel came up short, but, but apparently there were at least some aspects of Jesus' teaching after the resurrection um, that he had not been taught yet. Remember the great commission Jesus gave to his disciples after he rose from the dead, and that commission com- included the command to baptize disciples into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It also included the command to teach them all that I have commanded you. And that is what Aquila and Priscilla do for Apollos in verse 26. They're very gentle about it. And Apollos is very teachable. He listens. And so the Lord Jesus equips Apollos in that way to be more effective in ministry, not just in Ephesus, um, but westward in Greece as well. This is an important piece of the background, uh, giving some context for what Paul runs into when he arrives in Ephesus in chapter 19, verse 1. And there again, Paul uh, meets a whole group of disciples who have an incomplete understanding of Jesus and his message. Here it's important to remember another theme from John the Baptist's preaching. Remember how John the Baptist used to say, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you how? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So in verse 2, these disciples are, are not saying that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Any person with the background in the Old Testament would have been aware of the idea of the Spirit of God. Um, and John the Baptist himself had preached about the future coming of the Holy Spirit with the coming of the Christ. The point is, when they say we haven't heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, the point is that they haven't heard if he has yet come, as John the Baptist had foretold. They haven't yet heard the rest of the story, so to speak. Um, Or to put it very simply, they haven't heard about Pentecost. They haven't heard about Pentecost, and therefore, their faith, their Christianity, is incomplete. Pentecost, you see, is part of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Pentecost is part of the gospel. That not only has Jesus come, not only has Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God, not only has Jesus risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, but from heaven, this is part of the good news, that from heaven Christ has poured out upon his church the gift that he promised, Christ's own presence with his people 
to comfort them and encourage them and give them power to carry out his mission in the world. And that's the Holy Spirit. On our church website, first thing you see when you open it up is a banner for this sermon series, and it says, Acts, Christ's church on Christ's mission by Christ's Spirit for Christ's glory. That's what the book of Acts is about. And it is showing us that Pentecost is part of the good news of the work of Christ for his people. We have to watch out here. Some Christians today use this passage about these followers of John the Baptist's message um, to teach a false doctrine called a second blessing. Second blessing. So in, in Pentecostal churches, they'll teach you that there are two stages to the Christian life. That first you become a Christian, you're converted, but then later you need to seek a second blessing of receiving the Holy Spirit or Holy Spirit baptism. And a Christian who hasn't received what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit should be looking for, should be desiring that second blessing. And you can see how if you're coming from that point of view, if that's already the belief that you hold in this passage might seem to be a proof text. You have these people who have some degree of faith, but then Paul comes along, teaches them more, lays hands on them, then they receive the Holy Spirit, start speaking in tongues. Seems like a two-stage reception of the gospel. The problem is that when you understand what this passage is actually teaching, understand it, it's, it's actually teaching the, the opposite for the present day. Again, remember what I said earlier, that Pentecost is part of the gospel. That is the point of what happens here to these disciples of John. Paul is showing them here, and Luke is passing on to us, that receiving the Holy Spirit is part of what it means to be a true Christian. I've described many times before how many of the key events in Acts are not intended to be examples of Christ's ordinary work in the church for all time. Many of the events in Acts are descriptions of the history of Christ's extraordinary work once and for all in the first foundational generation of the church, setting the stage for the rest of church history. They are foundational acts of Christ that are not repeatable, that belong to this particular foundational, transitional uh, time of the apostles. Pentecost is the supreme example of that. That was a once-for-all act of um, salvation history, every bit as much as the death of Christ every bit as much as the resurrection of Christ. What's happening with these disciples of John fits in that same pattern. These disciples of John the Baptist are being brought up to speed, we could say, with the complete gospel. Before, they did not have the complete gospel. Now they are being given the complete gospel. They are being taught that to be a Christian means to have the Holy Spirit. You cannot have Christ without having the Spirit of Christ. Christ, from heaven, is working through Paul to advance these people beyond the Old Covenant, the Old Testament message of John, into the full light of the New Covenant message of Christ. That's what's happening here. And the point is that if you want to be truly a full gospel Christian, then you must not separate Christ from his Spirit as though you can somehow have one without the other, as though you can get Jesus at the beginning of your Christian life and then the Holy Spirit later. You cannot. 
Because to have Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ. And in fact, it's only through the Spirit of Christ that we come to have Christ through the faith that he works in our hearts. The Spirit unites us to him. So these disciples then um, represent a historical shift from John the Baptist into the gospel age. Not at all as the normal progression of the Christian life for believers today. As though we're supposed to start out first as disciples of John and then later in the Christian life become full Christians. Not at all. Um, There's also a a broader principle here to learn. Um, Beyond that narrow issue of, of the Holy Spirit and second blessing and so on. The broader principle here is simply to see that a true Christian is a teachable Christian. A true Christian is a teachable Christian. Both Apollos and these disciples of John in chapter 19, look at how willing they are to learn, how willing they are to be taught. They wanted not just a partial Christianity. They wanted not just enough to get by. They wanted not a bare-bones faith. They wanted the whole truth. They wanted the whole Christ. Whatever there is to know about Jesus and his word, we want you to teach us. Don't leave us in our ignorance. Let's not just putter around in the, in the shallow end where we feel comfortable with the things that we've already been taught and hearing them again. Take us deeper. Take us further up and further in to the the riches and the depths of the gospel so that we can embrace everything that Jesus has to give us. Teach us all that Christ has commanded. And you can ask yourself this morning, is that your attitude towards your Christian faith? Or are you just kind of puttering around in the shallow end if you have no interest in learning, if you have no interest in growing in your faith, if you are not a teachable Christian, and you're staying in that shallow end with no intention to leave it, then there's good reason to ask yourself whether you're really in the pool. Because a true Christian is a teachable and growing Christian. So in the first place, Um, Paul faces these people who are sincere, they're they're simply ignorant. And so that um, problem is taken care of through teaching. There's a second challenge that Paul faces in the next section. As it turns out, in Ephesus, there were a lot of people who, says, practiced magic arts. And the idea was you use certain techniques, you say certain words... Uh, You mix certain substances together. Maybe you invoke the right spiritual forces and you get the outcome that you want. Um, Interestingly, Luke kind of lumps together, or at least places side by side as as part of the same um, root. he, He puts together the pagan magical practices of of the pagan Greek culture, right along with these um, itinerant Jewish exorcists, these seven sons of, of Sceva. And why is that? Well, it's because the way these uh, Jewish exorcists were trying to cast out evil spirits, 
their methods had a lot more in common with pagan magic than it did with the true spiritual power of Jesus and his apostles. In verses 11 and 12, Luke summarizes this astonishing, very powerful, very dramatic work of Christ through Paul doing what he calls extraordinary miracles. Um, of course, the apostles have been doing miracles ever since chapter 2 uh, as a way, as part of uh, Christ's um, plan for authenticating the gospel message to those who hear it. Um, and to an Israelite audience, so when the miracles were taking place back in Jerusalem, um, like after Pentecost, the, the miracles were a signal that the day of the Lord is here, that the kingdom of God has come, that the promises are coming true. They would have had an Old Covenant, uh, Old Testament point of reference from the, the Hebrew Scriptures. People would have known these are the kinds of things the prophets talked about. Well, here in Ephesus, um, that Old Testament reference point is still there, especially for the Ephesian Jewish community. So that part of the, the, um, the meaning hasn't gone away. But there's something more to it here because these miracles are also confronting um, the, the superstition, the magical practices of the, the Gentile uh, pagan um, magicians of, of the Greek and Roman culture of Ephesus. And it's as though Christ is showing uh, the people of this city Look, what your so-called magicians are trying to do and perhaps claim to do and maybe sometimes seem able to do, I want you to just watch all of that absolutely pale in comparison to what I'm about to do in this city through my messenger, the Apostle Paul. Do you want to see what real spiritual power looks like? Real supernatural acts. Real not, um, not, just, not just the manipulation of the spiritual world, but the sovereign authority of the creator of all things visible and invisible. Once again, the miracles are there to authenticate the message. It's just that in this case, they're not only showing the Old Testament promises coming true, they are showing the folly and the feebleness of the so-called magic practiced by the charlatans conjurers of Ephesus. Um, if you're a little sheepish because you're not sure whether to laugh, but you think it sounds kind of funny when the demon overpowers the seven sons of Sceva and they run away naked and wounded and you're kind of trying not to smile, it's okay because if you're, if you're feeling the humor there, you're reading it right. It's almost, it's almost slapstick. It's like they're the seven stooges being completely overwhelmed by this uh, demonic power and being completely put to shame by comparison to the power of Christ is demonstrating through Paul. And what's the point? The point is that the gospel is not a way to manipulate spiritual things so that clever and power-hungry men can amaze the masses. Christianity is not about saying the right words and going through the right motions to get what we want from God. That is the way a lot of people treat Christianity today. That it's just about saying the right words and going through the right motions. Just going to church, maybe praying some prayers, having the right Bible verses on our gear and posted on our walls. And we do all these things in the right way, then we'll be able to get what we want from God. That's thinking like a magician. It's not thinking like a Christian. 
Christianity is about having the inward conviction that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that it is true enough for you to hang your life on it. And it is true enough for you to die for, it is true enough for you to live for, and it is true enough for you to stake your whole eternal destiny upon it. True Christianity is convictional. It's not about external actions. It is about a, an, a settled inward commitment to Christ. Christ who has all authority and power in heaven and on earth as being demonstrated here through the miracles of Paul. Now if you think that's, that's the kind of Christianity that I want to have in my heart, my household, my family, that's good. It's the only true Christianity there is. But you need to be warned that that kind of conviction does not, cannot, will not leave a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl unchanged. True Christianity is not only a complete Christianity and a convictional Christianity, it is a transformational Christianity that results in changed Christians. And that's what we see in verses 17 to 20. All this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. That's the first effect. There's this fear, this awe, this wonder at the power of God. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's the second effect. These people were driven to worship. They're driven to acknowledge the power of Jesus. But look at what comes next. Repentance. Repentance. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. A lot of you know I like to uh, play the mandolin, and my favorite mandolin player is, uh, his name's Chris Thiele, and he is just this superhuman, ridiculous uh, mandolin player, very virtuosic and so on. Um, and I once heard somebody say, um, you know, he's so good that when you hear him in concert, it makes you either want to practice like 12 hours a day, or it just makes you want to burn your mandolin. <laughs> and what these... With these magicians in verses 18 and 19, um, I think there's an element of that. We've just seen what real supernatural power looks like. What have we been doing all of this time? Well, all these incantations and these tricks and these potions that we think are going to get us what we want from the spiritual world. Now we've seen the power of Christ at work, and it's exposed us for what we really are. We're going to burn all of our books in response. Notice that this bonfire is an expensive bonfire. 50,000 pieces of silver is what these books are worth. It reminds me of the wonderful words of Catherine Winkworth in the hymn, Hence, all worldly treasure. Jesus is my pleasure. Jesus is my choice. Hence, all empty glory. 
What to me your story told with tempting voice? Pain or loss or shame or cross shall not from my Savior move me, since he chose to love me. These new Christians are making a true break with the way that they used to approach God, the way they used to approach the supernatural, the way they used to approach spiritual things, the way they used to try to control and manage their lives. And you know, you might think that we're very far from this antiquated culture. People don't generally buy into magic as a real thing. Some people do today, of course, but generally... Uh, polite society, kind of looks down on them, treats them as gullible and silly and backward. We don't have this problem, we might think. But what you have to understand is that the attitude behind magic, the heart motivation that led these people to try to use these books to try to, to bring them health and happiness and safety, that spirit, that drive to control our world on our own terms, is very much alive today. We just try to do it in different ways. We try to do it through technology. We try to do it through psychology. The magic of our day is the magic of the screen, the magic of Wall Street, the magic of the self-help book, Um, just to name a few. Techniques, ways of manipulating words, thinking in different ways, speaking in different ways to ourselves and others to try to control and manage and manipulate our lives and the lives of other people to get for ourselves the health and the happiness and the safety that we crave without a thought for the one who promises freely to give all of these things and more in the ultimate sense to those who will surrender themselves to him, who will bow the knee to him, who will listen and have their hearts filled with his word, their minds and their speech filled with his content, and who are willing to let go of everything else. If only they can have him. In conclusion, I want to go back and review these three sections one more time and and sum up, I think, three dangers we can see here that affect the church at all times, including our own, and that are exemplified in the things Paul encounters in Ephesus. Number one from the first section is the danger of ignorance. The danger of ignorance. Ignorance is a big problem in the church today. Never, it seems, have we had so many books and resources available to us, and never have Christians, not just outsiders to the church, but Christians, been so ignorant, by comparison, to of, of the faith that we claim to possess, of the basic contents of the Word of God. I say never, it's a little bit of an overstatement, because ignorance in the church, including among the clergy, um, was one of the great problems that the Reformers were confronting coming out of the medieval church. Um, worship in the medieval church was had become an act. It was like magic. That's where the phrase hocus pocus comes from. It was the priest saying, hoc est mea corpus, this is my body, but nobody really knew what that meant. It just sounded like a bunch of hocus pocus. It's just doing magic, turning the bread 
and wine into body and blood so that we can get grace from God by just going through the motions, the outward motions of worship. Love Christ does not want his people to be ignorant. He wants us to be teachable. He wants us to be learning. He wants us to be growing. Like Apollos, like these disciples of John the Baptist, he wants the church to be teaching people all that Christ has commanded as part of our great commission. And the other side of that is the duty of every Christian to desire that learning, to desire that growth. The first problem is ignorance. The second problem is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In the sons of Sceva, you see seven men who were treating Christianity as completely treating the power of Christ as as having to do with completely outward things, but they had no inward conviction of its truth. Let's not be a hypocritical church that is all about external things. Let's be a convictional church, a church that is about the truth that is found in Christ and not about getting some tricks for living a better life. And then finally, this is important, there's the problem of unconfessed sin. A problem of unconfessed sin. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. To confess means to agree with God openly about our sin. To leave the darkness and step into the light to bring our sin out of those dark corners of our lives where we don't want anybody to to peek, and to bring them into the light of God's law and the light of God's mercy and forgiveness so that we can have those sins forgiven and so that we can give them up and really change and move past them. That is what a true Christian will do. You can see that so vividly illustrated in the way these people brought their books out, confessed and divulged their sins and rid themselves of those books forever. A true Christian will not leave your sin in the dark. You will not hide it. You will bring it out and you will hold it up to God with open hands so that he can take it away and cast it into the depth of the sea like he's promised to do. But if you hold on to it, refuse to let it go, you will not experience that blessing of forgiveness and freedom. This is the kind of transparent Christianity that leads to a transformed life. A complete Christianity, a convictional Christianity that leads to truly changed Christians. Let's pursue that kind of Christianity here at Resurrection because we're pursuing that same Christ by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We're so thankful for Paul's ministry in Ephesus and for Luke's inspired historical record of it from which we can learn and benefit now, these many years later. Thank you for the foundation that you were laying and for um, these wonderful pictures of what it looks like to be teachable, growing Christians, um, to see your true power overwhelming and putting to shame the counterfeit power of the world and to see what it's like to receive true freedom and forgiveness, liberation from sin um, through confessing our sins and experiencing true change um, through the complete gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would make us complete Christians, that you would um, give us a convictional faith, and that you would change us, transform us.
through the power of your Spirit, just as you did for the church in Ephesus. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.